Hello, this is Peter Hartlob, and this is a flashback to a December 20th, 2018 edition of Datebook Podcast, where I talk with my colleagues, theater critic Lily Janik and classical music critic Joshua Cosman about the times we've been surprised in our careers. It's one of my all-time favorite podcast episodes and pretty timeless. I think you'll enjoy it. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Peter Hartlaub, pop culture critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, and this is the surprise episode of the Datebook Podcast. The idea started at a recent Litquake event featuring Datebook critics after we opened up questions to an audience of Chronicle readers. Some of the questions were very pointed, suggesting that we might enjoy giving bad reviews. It ended up being the most sincere moment of the night, where my fellow Chronicle critics talked about the joy of being surprised at an arts event. I invited two of those critics to join me on this episode, classical music critic Joshua Cosman and theater critic Lily Janik. The result, I hope you'll agree, was a funny, thoughtful conversation about criticism that gets to the heart of why we love our jobs. Daybook Podcast, thanks for listening. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to the Datebook Podcast, Lily Janik and first-timer Joshua Cosman. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Peter. I am um, sorry. I'm, I don't want to just totally fawn over you right now, but I'm excited to have you down here because I think you're like the funniest guy <laughs> in Datebook. I don't want to put that pressure well, on thanks. you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Measure man. up. Got to measure sh- up. But thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So we're going to talk about surprises today, and this comes out of um, our Litquake adventure, uh, which was a little bit of a surprise in itself. <laughs> uh, we, we found out we were going to be at Litquake, and uh, there was some uncertainty, and then we got up on stage, and it ended up, I think, being a good time. It was great. Great time. Got to talk about some things that we do here at the Chronicle, and one of the areas that came up was surprises, um, that as critics, you know, there's a lot of people think that we love writing a negative review, and we love you know, tearing people apart. Right. And that we have this negative opinion of this person and it's never going to change. And we go to the theater or to the movies or to the symphony precisely to confirm our pre-existing opinion over and over again. Yeah. Which is the exact opposite of the case. I I think a surprise is like, that's like the battery that keeps me going as a critic. The possibility that I might walk into something and have either low expectations or not know what it is and just be blown away. That that could happen anytime. I feel like that's what powers me as a critic. That's almost better than having high expectations and having them be met. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that that could happen anytime. Otherwise, how do you keep going day after day, week after week, and hearing, you know, or 
decade after decade. Decade after decade. Yeah, right. Do you remember like the first time you were surprised? And you could go back before you were a critic, but in the arts, an early time that you were surprised. Well, this isn't the very first. Um, and maybe I should be a little leery of admitting this on the air, but I wasn't like one of those early, oh, yes, I love Shakespeare so much from like freshman year reading Romeo and Juliet aloud in English class. I was not one of those people. I was tortured kind of just like everybody else in that situation, except for the one weird kid, except I wasn't the weird kid. Yet here I am, the theater critic. But I think I even made it all the way through college, I'll confess, still without really catching the Shakespeare but bug i had this like deadly english professor whose ponderous voice <laughs> did little you know to help bring the text alive but then 2007 you know maybe so that was like right before i graduated college i'm dating myself here the scandal <laughs> but like i saw at the public theaters free shakespeare in the park um, so this is in the De La Court Theater in um, Central Park, a production of Romeo and Juliet with Oscar Isaac and Lauren Ambrose. Wow. And uh, they just made that scene, like the balcony scene, like it was so carnal. And so like, let me touch your body, baby, that <laughs> I, I, I was like, oh, this text can be a vehicle to to explore the most human, relatable, obvious thing that we all feel from time to time. And I just, I, it had never previously occurred to me that Shakespeare could be so human before. And that opened so many doors for me. I was late bloomer, but I got there eventually. I had a similar one, actually, speaking of Shakespeare, which is that I discovered embarrassingly late um, Verdi's opera Otello, which is his second to last opera and one of the great <clears throat> Shakespeare operas. Anyway. You should be ashamed, Joshua. I am ashamed. I am discovering ashamed. it. And so I knew some other some other pieces of it. And I was in school, and you know, I somehow it came up on a course syllabus. I thought, okay, I don't know this piece. I'm going to you know take the score and the recording and <clears throat> find out about it. And m my head just blew off, and I became a real pest i became i came i sort of went around buttonholing people like do you know about verdi's otello can i preach to you about this and of course i was a music student so everybody i was saying this to was like yeah we kind of were there we're on this train buddy yeah you're kind of late to the party i thought okay but i don't care i just had to i had to spread the word i had to evangelize you you remember these both of you these are such detailed stories and um, clearly, you know, to some degree, that's the spark that helps shape your career. Did you know it at the time? I mean, was there a, a light that went on, like, maybe maybe this is something I want to do for the rest of my life or have this be part of my life? I was always going to be a theater person somehow, some way. Uh, I tried everything, um, <laughs> including acting, which I failed at. It, acting is really hard. <laughs> Anything on YouTube that we can... <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Okay, there okay. might be a VHS somewhere in Fort Worth, Texas um, <laughs> that, that I will keep in Fort Worth, Texas. But if, I think for me, it was just confirmation of a path I was already walking along. Yeah, same here. I, I kind of decided to be a music critic very early, freshman year of college, just because it seemed like a way to 
hang around with music and not have to do it myself. That wasn't, that wasn't happening. I, I had, mine is, uh, of course, involves a movie and a movie theater, but I, I was a big Star Wars kid and yes. saw Star Wars when I was like six or seven. And from that moment, the only thing I wanted was more Star Wars. Um, <laughs> and I wanted aliens and spaceships and who's, you know. How do you feel about that now, by the way? <laughs> it pretty much haven't changed. But what happened with me was my parents had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there's no Siskel and Ebert then. There's I'm not reading the newspapers very much. And I didn't know what it was. All I knew is that it took place in the 30s and 40s. So my parents were like, we're going to drop you off at a theater. I'm like 10 or 11 years old. And it was in uh, Santa Barbara at the Arlington, which is this gorgeous theater. And it was the first time I ever saw a movie alone. And I remember being skeptical. I'm asking them, like, are, are there any aliens in it? Like, do aliens <laughs> show up later on? You know, is there a robot? I mean, and I just remember going there thinking this is going to be this old thing. Um, and then the discovery being blown away, number one. Number two, I remember looking around and being in the theater in the Arlington in Santa Barbara has, um, it's just this beautiful old mission style interior with like these fake balconies and stuff. And the whole experience of it made me fall in love with movies and then made me fall in love with theaters oh, just great. as much. And now I, I, I kind of preach the destination theater. You know, <laughs> you, you hear me I write probably too many stories about the Grand Lake Theater, but I mean, that's the theater that I get that feeling in. And I, I didn't sit there and go, I want to be a critic. I, I'm going to get paid. But that sort of, I feel like, was my artistic awakening. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So that's early on. But we've built a body of work yeah. uh, as critics. And I was thinking that maybe we could just share sort of one at a time, maybe two or three rounds, a few different times that we've been surprised as critics at the Chronicle or somewhere else. And uh, you want to start? I want to start just because we started with um, the earliest examples, and I've got the most recent example because it happened this past week. Wow. Which was the San Francisco Symphony announcing that they were going to bring in Essa Pekka-Salen as the new music director to succeed Michael Tilson Thomas. Um, I got to emphasize that few, if anybody, few people, if anyone, could have seen this coming because he has. So just to set the stage a little bit, Salonen was the music director of the. Los Angeles Philharmonic for 17 years. He left there in uh, 2009. He did a fabulous job there. And then he stopped and he said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to com- concentrate on my comp- on composing, do some guest conducting, this, that, and the other. So when, as, the, as the San Francisco Symphony has been looking for a replacement for Michael T.T. for the last year, I and everybody else have been thinking, oh, who are they going to get? There, you know, there's this one, there's that one, the other one. There are a lot of people out there, but nobody was really, you know, really completely hit on all bases. So they called me a week or so ago, and they said, we want to talk to you about something. I thought, oh, no, man. I know where this is going. They're going to tell me who the new music director is going to be, and I'm going to be bummed. Yeah. <laughs> because, there's n- I, because I thought, I've thought this out. I know who's out there. I know who's a possible candidate. Some of them are okay. Some of them are good. Nobody's great. Yeah. So I kind of go to this meeting with the publicist, p- the PR manager for the symphony. And you're and dreading it. I'm dreading it because I'm yeah. going to have to be like, oh, that'll be <laughs> not, yeah. And he says, all right, well, you know what this is about. I said, yes. And he, 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 he takes a, a, a sort of a draft of the press release and 
he. This feels very gangster, by the way. Well, it wasn't. It like, was like I can't it was say it like what I. It was like what I picture to be, you know, um, the salary negotiations yeah, in yeah. businesses that aren't newspapers. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. he slides the the, dre- the press release across the table to me, face down, <laughs> and you know, like. There's a little drum roll, and I turned it over, and I levitated about five inches out of my chair, and I went, are you kidding me? This is who you're going to—I was—because it had never occurred to me for a minute, because he's been very clear that he didn't want to do it. He's been—you know, he's been pursued by other organizations. Anyway— um, that was my big surprise of of the last few weeks. I, I you had your big scoop, and yeah. um, this podcast will be out a few days after um, the okay. big scoop came yesterday, though. Uh-huh. Um, and I read there's something electric about your write up, and it was a, it, it, that's not the kind of write up that usually feels electricity, but there was a momentum to exactly. it that you know there's going to be change here, and that's exciting. Exactly, and. You know, like I say, I wouldn't have written it that way about anyone else. It would be, well, they named so and so, and that'll be cool. We're, <laughs> we're all looking forward to this. But this is this is really a kind of a different kind of development. Yeah. The one that came up first for me, and for some reason, every time I think about surprises, I I gravitate towards this one. This was in 2014 at Cutting Ball Theater. They did. Um, it, it was a really ambitious project. Oh, sorry, 2012. But uh, it was all five of August Strindberg's chamber plays performed in repertory. And like you could, there was one or two days, maybe just one where you could see all five of them in one day, which I did, of course. But anyways, so there was this actor in it who I believe isn't local anymore. And his name is Nick Trengove. And previously, I had always seen him basically in roles where someone needed to display their biceps. Like we need some muscle bound beefcake to like come on stage and flex and like look like a, a, a bodybuilder or just like, I don't know, a very fit person and like smile. Um, I'm, I'm simplifying here, but that's just how I'd always thought of him as, oh, this really like muscle bound hunky mm-hmm. type. And he played this peevish, bookish, nerdy little guy who I I just didn't see coming at all from him. I, in my imagination, I never would have cast him in that part. And it just made me feel like the ultimate humanizing thing that the arts can do is when someone like a casting director sees this potential, sees this little undiscovered spark in an artist that hasn't maybe gotten to flower, mixing metaphors big time, anywhere else, um, and lets that come to fruition. And to be able to see that in someone when everyone else might dismiss it or never even give it a chance, I just think that's the greatest gift you can give to an artist and to the audience who gets to see that artist. Yeah, I, I love being wrong. I love going in and thinking like, oh, that guy, and mm-hmm. I love to be wrong. <laughs> Mine is uh, Snoop Dogg. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> October 30th, 2006, at the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium, I go to see Snoop Dogg. Um, I'm not super excited. I respect his place in rap history, but he was never my favorite rapper. Uh, 
I know there's going to be a lot of weed smoking there, and I'm going to be the only guy not smoking weed, and that's my f- probably least favorite position to be in as a critic, is to not be in the state of mind that everyone else is in. And then I don't like reviewing it in that position, because everybody's having a good time in that state of mind, and I'm the one guy who's not. It seems false. Yeah. Um, so I go, and it all goes as I expect. Opening act is there everybody's smoking weed fire alarm goes off no one notices except me i'm like hey do we have to get out of here and like no one cares um one hour one hour snoop dog i expect this with like guns and roses or prince but snoop dog get on stage like within 10 to 15 minutes after the the opening act has gotten off one hour we have to wait for snoop dog <laughs> so i'm not happy i'm sitting there he goes on and and you know half uh, if you saw old school, it's a good representation. His performance in old school, he's kind of like half talking to the crowd. He's got this big chalice that he's drinking from, <laughs> half performing. I'm not in the state of mind. We get about 30 minutes into this, 35 minutes, and I go up to the top of Bill Graham Civic. Everybody's down on the bottom, and I start writing my review. You know, and and I know like I'm gonna maybe fill in a couple blanks, but I know where this is going. And I'm sitting up there writing my review, and he stops. And I notice that he's talking a little more than normal, and I pay a little bit of attention. My ears perk up. He starts talking about Too Short and being in Long Beach and how people passing around tapes, including Too Short's tapes, the Oakland rapper, um, real groundbreaking, selling his tapes from the trunk and, and the kind of the DIY movement and rap that spread to a lot of other genres. So he starts talking about how Too Short inspired him and this heartfelt Snoop Dogg story that was like none of the other stories he told that night. And I just want to point out it's about like archival stuff. Yeah. So Peter the Archive Man is all about this. Wait a second. <laughs> this Snoop Dogg concert's taking an exciting turn into the into the past. Then I hear the first notes of Blow the Whistle, which was Two Short's brand new uh, kind of comeback song, and Two Short comes bounding out and just everybody starts going toward the stage. So I'm running down from, and, and I don't know if you've been in the Bill Graham Civic, but the the top floor where the seats are there, it's like four stories up. So I'm like running down four sets of stairs to like not miss this performance. And then for the next 20 minutes, there was a freestyle where every big rapper, Snoop Dogg had invited, this is probably why he was an hour late. He's every big local rapper, um, came out and freestyled sometimes two or three at a time it was joyous i mean it wasn't oh competitive wow. san quinn jt the bigafiga rap and forte uh, a very very young mr fab was there so you had like generations of rappers in a freestyle with just a beat going and it was like this just joyous thing it was one of the my favorite musical moments and i grew up with a lot of these rappers and i mean it was Stunning. I looked at the review, and the review is like this horrible. I, I'm ashamed of it. It's this horrible <laughs> mashup of the story sure I was writing great. up there. because oh. <laughs> I didn't want to throw that away on deadline. <laughs> hey, cool, I wrote Jerry. it. I wrote with, it. With, like the most exciting, I can't throw this away. <laughs> exciting artistic thing I've seen. So that's my big one. I got another smaller one later, but um, that to me is like the, great. the greatest surprise I've had as a critic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's number one. I got one. I mean, the first thing I thought of when you asked about this was a, a performance that I heard. This is back in '96. That's how long I've been doing this. And and Montserrat Caballé, the Spanish soprano who just died recently, um, was supposed to sing in Davies Hall, 
and she got sick and she had to cancel. So they they there's a little silence, and then the, like a day later, the word goes out they're bringing in Victoria de los Angeles, another Spanish soprano. But let me just set the seed for you. This is 1996. Victoria de los Angeles was a great great soprano in the 50s and 60s, Uh-oh. like. I knew her recording, like she made classic recordings of, you know, Puccini and other uh, operas. She had, she sang one time in San Francisco at the San Francisco Opera in 1962. She had come back, the last time she had been in the Bay Area to do anything was 1978. Now we're in 96. She's 73 years old. Um, I found out from my review that they sold 2,200 tickets and half of them were turned back. Like, you know. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got to go. But, you know, this is the worst possible reviewing assignment, is to go review a 73-year-old soprano who used to be great. <laughs> do you want to do this? I don't. Oh, sounds like... Ugh. So I go, uh, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, no, this is going to be really harsh all around. And I went, and I have to tell you, it was not only okay, it was fabulous. It was transcendent. She had, I mean, she had you know, lost a little bit off her fastball, obviously. But, I mean, the the artistry and the tone and the beauty and everything she sang, just, it was just rapturous. And I had to write one of those, you know, I'm in rapture reviews, which are so hard to do because you just like, you know, all you can do is go, ah, God, Let me fabulous. gush some more. Yeah, exactly. In paragraph number 12. And it was, and, and, and because everybody, nobody wanted to hear it, you know, the place was, was like empty and so we had the feel of being a little sort of private audience with this great singer and she died a number of years later and I felt like okay that was you know that was a moment that was a moment in my career that I will never forget and could not have seen it coming what's it like writing that review what do you feel like when you kind of actually get to the the computer um, I have, to, you know, I I had to really turn on the gush mode and and put myself in the, you know, it became a very personal review. It wasn't just like I, you know, here's what she sang and here's how it was. It was like this was an event. If you were there, you know, you're going to remember this for a long time. You know, there were only a few of us in the hall, and and I, I think my lead was, you know, anybody who heard the who who was there for that. Uh, don't bother talking to us for a while. We haven't come back to Earth yet or something oh, like well, that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I just always feel inadequate to my subject when I have one of those experiences. Mm. Like anything I do, no matter how good the lead is, no matter how, I, I, I don't know. It's just I'm I'm going to fail and that is okay yeah. um, because it's it is impossible to capture. Yeah, those are hard ones to do. And I mean, you said earlier, you know, people always think we 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 live for the negative reviews, but these are the ones that really, you know, change everything for us. Yeah. I I feel like uh, if you guys saw Ratatouille, mm-hmm. Anton Ego, yeah, at the yeah. end when he eats the ratatouille, and <laughs> I, and I get like the Peter O'Toole voice in my head, where I'm just like, and I have seen the finest Lego movie that <laughs> anyone has ever seen. You know, I mean, Alvin and the Chipmunks. I, I totally feel just like you know humbled yet on my high horse at the same time. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry. So one of mine is uh, Jim Carpenter. Uh, who you've interviewed, oh, Peter. Yeah. And so he, here, this is not something, you you never have low expectations with Jim Carpenter. So this is not that kind of story. He is, if you want to think of um, like the statesman of Bay Area theater or 
who is a great, who is the great living male actor in live performance here? It's him. I mean, there's, there's not really, he's the first person to come to mind. So you usually see Jim in these stately, kingly, Shakespearean roles. He just has this effortless um, nobility about him, a, a kind of regal presence that he wears lightly and naturally. Um, he can handle the really complicated diction uh, of Shakespeare, of course, and, and just make it seem as light as a feather. In 2014, the Aurora Theater cast him in a David Mamet play called American <laughs> Buffalo. And there is no grandeur or kingliness, or at least not on the surface in this play. Jim played this character called Teach. And in my memory, he had this like burgundy pleathered jacket <laughs> and this um, printed collared shirt. And I don't think they were like leather pants, but it, it was like in that neighborhood. Um, he was just this total fidgety, twitchy lowlife, like like maybe a Steve Buscemi character or a Quentin Tarantino character. And he pulled it off so magnificently. It, it just made me be like, wow, you, you think Jim Carpenter, he has all the range. He, he's you know, um, played all these kings and tragedians, but I don't even think we've begun to see the range of uh, what Jim Carpenter can do. Um, we we wow. should cast him as all the, like, mangy, like, I don't know, trashy types. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't actually go to too many plays just because I don't have all that many free nights but I feel you like you go a lot actually I, I go f- as much as I can and I feel like over the years I just kind of whenever I show up at a play I, I pick up the program and say oh Jim Carpenter again here he is and I'm always delighted I mean he's just always such a, a joy to see yeah yeah and in this production in particular for me November 7th 2002 uh I've got the a papers great date. here a great day in history for criticism um I reviewed Grand Theft Auto Vice City. <laughs> I love how the, the dynamic of this, because you guys are just the high arts. And we love it. Um, and Grand Theft Auto Vice City had followed Grand Theft Auto 3, which were known for their extreme violence. And all of the extreme violence people from Leland Yee locally to Tipper Gore to uh, Joe Lieberman are talking about um, this is a game where you hire prostitutes and hit people over the head with a hammer. (laughs) And I know that's not true. I mean, I know that video games have been heading in this direction of free choice where you can spend your time delivering pizzas or you can hit someone over the head with a hammer. Um, But Grand Theft Auto Vice City was a breakthrough in that. In the digital sandbox of video gaming where instead of being on a rail like a roller coaster and you're going from here to here to here and fighting this boss and doing this, you're in a city and can go wherever you want and do a mission over here or not, a mission over here or not, and you're sort of meandering your way toward this plot point. It's like immersive theater. Yes. So this is the first (laughs) real game in that. And all of the publicity for it had been about the violence because the people who were writing about it and the people who were protesting it 
didn't know where video games were going. And I had seen video games going that way for years. I just remember picking up this game, and I don't have like a grand story beyond that, except I remember picking up the game and expecting to see some of all of the protest stuff and getting in a car and realizing that with my little handhold controller, that with the little like left on the, the right dial, I could in that car flip radio channels. <laughs> so I'm driving around Vice City, which is like this sort of comic version of like the Miami Vice Miami. And I'm not hitting anybody over the head with a hammer. I'm not <laughs> going and trying to steal a cop car. I'm just driving around this fake city changing all the channels on my radio station because there's like 12 of them that's like so much detail yes and i mean there's like all they hired voice actors to do commercials for these radio channels i'm just driving around flipping these radio channels going what a time to be (laughs) a video game critic how old Uh, are you at this point by the way (laughs) 2002 so i'm in my uh early 30s (laughs) 31 32 and I just drove around flipping channels, radio channels, <laughs> thinking about like, like how great video games are and how all these people that are protesting this, they're going to be remembered as the people who didn't get it and that video games are going to go in this direction that's revolutionary. Wow. And they did. Yeah. And, and, you know, this game is a classic. Um, and I read that review, too, and I did a crappy job with that. So oh, I, no. I, I do not do – sometimes I do good jobs. I, I've looked at a few things, but um, – uh, yeah, I, I, I was focusing more on the protest element of it and probably should have focused more on the innovation. But that's fine. Grand Theft that's Auto Vice City. Do you, do, guys have, do you guys have more? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I just have one, a quick one, which okay. isn't, it's not that it's a great story, but it, it, feels, it always feels exemplary to me about why we have to do this job the way we do it, which is don't assume you know what's going on and check it all out, which is that this was 95. I went to hear a piano recital for by a, a pianist I'd never heard of, a 55-year-old Slovenian woman who was in town. And I had no reason, I didn't know anything about her. I had no reason to think she was any good. There was no reason to cover her except she was there and I was covering my beat. And I went in and she started playing the Scarlatti Sonata and in about two seconds I went, okay, that's it. I'm quitting my job. I'm going to follow this woman on tour around the country because this is what it, where it's at. And she was just tremendous. I'd n- in and you know, and then she would come back every couple of years, and I would go like, "All right, I got to go review her." I'm sorry, I didn't mention her name. Dubrovka Tomsic. Oh. Dubrovka Tomsic. You don't have to remember that name. She's almost retired by now, but you know, I w- she would come every couple of years, and I would go, and I would say, you know, got to go hear Dubrovka Tomsic again. And after a while, David Wiegand, who was our longtime arts critic, said, "All right, we get it. Enough. The Slovenian <laughs> pianist. I know. Move on, man." <laughs> so I had to stop because <laughs> there was no more news. She was just always fabulous. But I always think of that as being the moment when I, that that proved to me, like, don't take it for granted. Check it out. Go see what's there just because it's happening. Nice. Yeah, we have to be serendipitous sometimes mm-hmm. in choosing what we cover. Um, and and we, we can't just like go to the same venues all the time. And that, that means, you know, sometimes we have to take a pass on something that's playing at one of the bigger venues so that we have time to go and make these discoveries. Exactly. It, it's, yeah. Uh, uh, otherwise, you know, we we just sound the same all the time. <laughs> it's yeah. true. I don't know. Um, one of my last ones. Um, this is maybe kind of like my Romeo and Juliet example. Um, 
I was for a long time under the mistaken impression that Our Town by Thornton Wilder is a very, very boring play. Uh, it, It has... I'm not the only one who suffered suffered from that mistaken impression. Uh, it's been done by community theaters and high schools. Um, any lesser play would not have survived the treatment it's it's gotten. Um, it it's like here's a town in New Hampshire. Here's its latitude and longitude. <laughs> uh, here's a here's a family that's like doing pretty well. They get older. It's I I did not get it. I didn't get it in college, um, but then Shotgun Players did a production in 2014, and it ju- it just made me directed by Susanna Martin. I wanted to hold on to everything and everyone in my life um, as tightly as I could afterward. Every second felt so precious. I couldn't believe I had never acknowledged all those seconds I had allowed to pass um, without a thought before. And I try to think about our town very frequently now, almost as like a, a talisman of a memory, just to remind myself every every moment is so meaningful and... They are slipping through your fingers faster than you know it. Lily is tearing up here in the I'm studio. I'm not. Yep. Is, not at all. She's, she's, Cosman she's, is. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, you're not crying. I'm crying. <laughs> I'm not crying. <laughs> you know, I was going to go, like I have on my little outline that I sent to everybody that let's talk about a few negative surprises too. I don't want to do that. Okay. I, we're like, we're lifted here. <laughs> yeah. We're elated. Good we'll call. do that as a sequel and then okay, we'll get super right. snarky. And everyone uh, will hate us and we'll confirm every bias that people have about critics. It'll be great. Yeah. And I also don't want to leave anything on the table. So do you guys have any other? No. I think we covered the bases. You all right? I mean, the, we have covered what I have prepared for this, Peter. <laughs> Excellent. So I want to thank you guys for both coming. Thank um, you. I had a really good time. I think this was a like A plus datebook podcast. This will be one of the ones that I send to the editors. Okay. So uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, keep being surprised. It's nice to know that you might go out there and find something new. Yeah. yeah. It fuels us. You yeah. know, it is what keeps us going. And exactly. Joshua, I've got two or three more podcasts planned for you. You don't know it yet. But, okay. Um, so Bring. I'd like to have you back. And, and Lily, as always, uh, thank you for coming. Datebook Podcast, thank you for listening. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Joshua Cosman and Lily Janik. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart's Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.